Hi. Hi. Good afternoon. Hi. Welcome to the 12th annual. Here, we'll sit on my lap. Tell me. <laughs> Welcome to the 12th annual City Lit Fest. Oh my. Say hello, dummy. <laughs> you've, got, you've gotten so big over the last year, little boy. What would you like for Christmas? Um, I am not Aaron Hankin. Um, my name is Greg Wilhelm. I'm the executive director of City Lit Project. Welcome to the 12th annual City Lit Festival here at the Pratt Library. Um, part of one of my brilliant ideas is to get uh, members of the media to host various programs throughout the festival. And they'll talk about it maybe on their radio show or in their newspaper or whatnot leading up to the event. And that's all well and good until the city experiences one of its most major news stories in the last hundred and probably some odd years of the city's existence. So, uh, as I've said on a number of occasions already this morning, um, our dear friends in the media are out there uh, bringing some responsible coverage to the very important events that have happened and are developing today and will continue to happen in the next several weeks. Um, so I will introduce uh, your guests for this afternoon and uh, they're going to read from their work and uh, maybe also provide a little music for you. Um, important note is after they're done, they're going to go immediately down to the Ivy Bookshop sales table where they'll be more than happy to sign copies of their books for you. And please do support them and support the Ivy Bookshop. Uh, the young man you just saw sitting on my lap is Jerry Lefemina. Um, he is a uh, professor, a poet, and a punk rocker. Uh, if you don't believe me, just look at his website. They're the first three words that pop up on it. Um, he is a graduate of Sarah Lawrence, guy's MFA from uh, Western Michigan University, and he's the author of 11 books of poetry and prose, including Vanishing Horizon, Notes from the Novice Ventriloquist, which I guess that was a little bit of a... Yeah, yeah right. Um, and Little Heretic. Uh, he will be reading from his novel, however, Clamor, which has the punk rock theme in it. Um, he's also uh, the director of the Center for Creative Writing at Frostburg State University, um, and uh, this New York native has fronted bands such as Expletive Deleted and Tom Collins and the Cocktail Shakers. I have to imagine that the genre of music between those two different bands with those two different names has to be quite different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and joining us all the way from the left coast is Frank Portman, who you might know better as Dr. Frank. He has uh, for a long time fronted a band called the Mr. T Experience, which has released 10 studio albums and five EPs in addition to his own solo work. But within the last um, five, six, seven years, when did, the, when did King Dork first come out? 2006. 2006. So it's been a good seven, I can't do math either, eight years, five years, nine years? 15. Thanks. Smart ass. Um, uh, he's turned his attention to uh, writing novels, and um, it's important to um, call them novels because we had a conversation earlier this morning about um, just because they're labeled by marketing people as young adult novels, there's no reason if they're absolutely important, critical, vibrant voices. Uh, King Dork is a so-called a young adult novel. He has also written uh, a novel entitled Andromeda Klein, but just last December, was it last December? The, the, uh, the sequel to his wildly um, successful book uh, came out, and that's entitled King Dork Approximately. So um, you're going to hear a little bit about how music influences their writing. You can f feel free to ask them questions about either their literary careers or their musical careers. Um, and I think uh, Dr. Frank's going to play a little bit for us, maybe a little bit later in the, in the hour. So Gents, it's up to you. Thanks a lot. We suddenly became gents. 
Well, I don't have a lot of experience with it. I'm going to follow your lead of what you do. With what I, whenever I do readings, I hardly do any any reading because I feel that reading is kind of boring. Um, but I'm going to try to get with the spirit of it here because it's a library and it's the it's a literary thing. So, but I I think he, I think Jerry has a much longer track record with the reading part of <laughs> than I do. So I've been reading for a long time. Um, I just first of all, I, I want to say that I think it's great that you are you are not burning the city um, and instead here today. Um, I think that's a good thing. And um, we we thought about like not being here and actually being out there, but um, decided that Did we? no. <laughs> You're ruining it for me, Frank. You're ruining it for me. I've already. He's following up. my lead. Yeah, right. I screwed it up. Um, I'm going to read. Uh, I'm going to read uh, a short chapter from Clamor here. Uh, what you need to know is that uh, Johnny Malice, uh, uh, who is the lead singer of a band called Riot Shield, uh, has not seen his older brother or his father in uh, about 12 years, and his father has just died. He is actually leaving the city of Baltimore, where he he has played that night, and he is driving up to uh, to the funeral. Uh, a surprise, so to speak. Somewhere south of Freehold, the New York radio station started to appear when Johnny hit the seek button. Baltimore and Philadelphia stations passed into static, and now the familiar radio stations of his youth returned, some with new call letters, some with new formats. College radio stations emerged from the white noise, serving up songs with interesting beats, interesting guitars or keyboards, interesting harmonies. He'd listen to one of these for 30 seconds and then push the seek button again. It was nearly 1.30. A few miles after hanging up with his sister, he'd hit a rest stop, washed his face with warm water, and bought a cup of burnt coffee, which he sipped every few minutes. The adrenaline rush of his performance was fading, and Johnny yawned. He pushed the seek button again. The thin keyboard plucking and faux Asian guitar lick of Susie and the Banshees' Hong Kong Garden came on. He hadn't listened to the song in years. He had seen Susie live three times in the mid-80s, back when he was living in the East Village with Gretchen and Samara. Always, Susie disappointed the three of them, and after each concert, Gretchen had said to him, I thought she would be better than that. He'd responded with something similar each time. It's not that they were bad. I just wish she'd engaged the crowd. I wish she'd looked like she were having fun up there. Still, he had a soft spot for the Banshees. It seemed like every girl he dated, every woman he dated, that had been involved with the scene liked Susie and the Banshees. And Gretchen, Gretchen could spin the Banshees, the Cure, and Joy Division almost every morning. Those days, they would take turns choosing the records in that little apartment. They'd sit on the floor against the ratty couch that served as Samara's bed, smoking cigarettes and kissing to whatever record orbited the spindle. The apartment was too small for one person, never mind the three of them, with the amps and guitars, the crates and crates of records, the boxes of books, and the two cats, Elvis and Lou, each named after a Costello. Gretchen worked nights, he worked afternoons, Samara worked days. Their mornings together before she left for class, when sunlight coming through the dirty windows looking out over East 9th Street were special. They drank coffee and talked softly about what five years would look like, or five days. In the stories they wrote then, they were always together. 
He sang along with the song, trying to hit the high notes of Susie Sue. He remembered how Gretchen and he would walk down to Chinatown some night after she were done with the bar, after shows. There were greasy, cheap Chinese joints open 24 hours that catered to the delivery men and drunks, the insomniacs and punks. They'd walk downtown singing, Gretchen doing all the verses and him singing the chorus with her. They'd laugh at the stoplights. Those days, they lived on ramen noodles and pizza, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, instant coffee. They drank tap water. They had no phone, no obligations other than the ones they chose, to each other, to the bands, to the scene. Life was easy. It seemed even easier with some dim sum, fried rice, and tea. He hadn't thought of Gretchen in years. He hadn't thought of that room that was barely big enough to hold their mattress, a dresser, and some shelves made from milk crates and boards. He had loved Gretchen in the first love way. He would do anything for her, and she would do anything for him. But the body had urges, and this was 1987, and people his age were giving in to urges left and right. Both he and Gretchen had slept with Samara, and he thought about it, and as he thought about it, his fingers drummed the steering wheel. Gretchen had wanted to at first, and then later she hadn't. She had asked him to be monogamous, to only want her. She had looked at him so lovingly in the bare light of their room. Samara was sleeping off a fat joint that she'd rolled earlier, and nothing would wake her. Please, Johnny, Gretchen had said. She wasn't crying, though her voice trembled some. I can share my apartment, my food, my clothes, everything. I can't share you anymore. He'd agreed. And with teenage logic, he'd asked her to marry him. They'd been at Washington Square Park watching the skateboard kids and talking about the future. I love New York, she'd said. Me too. You know what else I love? Before he could say any more, she asked, do you, do you know what you love really? Yeah, I could marry you and be really fucking happy. Johnny, Gretch, really, think about it. I mean, I love you. I live with you. You're like the only family I have. Oh, cut the shit. No bullshit. Come on, I'll show you. He took her hand. Together they stood. He led her diagonally across the park to the southwest side and then toward McDougal Street. He towed her to a cramped, esoteric jewelry store that catered to the alternative crowd. Its cases were filled with eyeball rings, skull rings, serpent rings, snake bracelets that wrapped up the entire wrist and ended with two silvery fangs dragon necklaces, saber earrings where the blade pierced the earlobe. It was much too small to handle more than three or four customers at a time, and the woman who worked there always had a smile on her face, one of those content natural smiles that seemed to suggest deeper knowledge. Johnny liked her. Much of the jewelry he wore, he bought there. What are we doing here, Gretchen laughed. What does this prove? Come on, he said, urging her up the five cement steps to the door. Inside, he looked at the rings, pointing out certain ones to her, only to dismiss them. She kept laughing. Johnny, this is silly. He used his fingers to scan the cluttered cases. Nothing was too expensive, but much of it was handmade and designed there, and it was silver, not pewter like the skull rings sold in the head shops on 8th Street. These were, real these were real jewelry, and his picking one of these was a gesture. He needed to prove to her how he felt right then. At that moment, he'd wanted nothing more than to love her forever. After a few minutes, he kept pointing at something, a silver band with a silver skull, like a solitaire diamond, face up from the band. It was dainty, simple, attractive. That one, let me see that one. 
The woman behind the counter had given it to him, and he turned to Gretchen. He was grinning, but there was a seriousness in his eyes, the kind of look she'd seen when he would play guitar with a notebook beside him, working on songs. This will work, he'd said. She'd smiled. Will you marry me, Gretchen? She raised up on tiptoes. Okay, you're serious. I get it. Is that a yes? The woman behind the counter was standing not far off, and Gretchen caught her eye. The older woman shook her head, still with that sedate smile on her face. Gretchen wasn't sure if she were telling her not to do it or was just amused by the goings-on. Gretchen looked at Johnny again. He was holding the ring out. His eyes were wide, and she could see the contact lenses in them. He looked like he might burst into flowers or into tears. If you need me to get down on my knee... Johnny, there's no need for that. Yes, yes, I'll marry you. She'd put her left palm to his right cheek gently. He took her hand, kissed the palm, and then slid the ring onto her ring finger. It was slightly too big, but they could take care of that. The cost was $65, and Johnny fished out some bills and change to pay for it. He was 18, and she was 20. As they'd walked back east along Bleecker Street, he kept looking at her, her sharp features, her spiky blonde hair. As much as he lusted for others, he still wanted to love her. He wanted to be irreplaceable. He wanted her to be irreplaceable to him. She wore that ring every day, wore it to shows, particularly when Mussolini's love child played. That's the name of his band at that point. But she'd never told her parents about the engagement and knew that John had never told his. It was serious, but she didn't want to give in to the temptation to believe in it the way he did. When he would say things from the stage like, this one's for my fiance Gretchen, it's a Ramones cover called Today Your Love, Tomorrow the World. She knew he liked the idea of being engaged, but the commitment was harder in the real world. Samara wasn't moving out. Gretchen knew the way his neck turned sometimes when an attractive woman walked by. She knew the way she flirted at work. It wasn't that she believed that either of them would give in to such temptation, but she just sometimes thought of that woman at the jewelry store shaking her head. It made her nervous. That woman seemed like the type who had premonitions, the old world gypsy types that you might see in a movie. Still, John tried. He'd avoided being home alone with Samara, as did Gretchen, but there were times when he would get home tired, hungry, and Samara would be there. Gretchen would be at the bar, and finally one late January afternoon, Samara came home and called for John and found him in the bedroom, his pants around his ankles, masturbating. You know, you don't have to do that, she'd said. Samara was walking temptation. They'd grown up together, and John couldn't just ask her to move out, although things had changed. For years, it was hard to see her as anything but the lean eighth grader she'd been in middle school. By the time Johnny was playing in bands, taking subways into Manhattan to see shows, Samara had grown up. There were rumors around that she had slept with a teacher. She had firm, high breasts, long legs, and wore ripped T-shirts and short skirts with torn leggings to accentuate it all. Johnny was aware she was sexy. Older guys dated her, hit on her on the scene. Many times she'd disappear backstage with a singer or guitarist. John was her friend, her protector. Sure, they'd kissed once or twice, but John was still insecure, a virgin still at nearly 17, and he'd wanted love. 
Then John met Gretchen after a bad itch show at CB's. It had been a Sunday hardcore matinee, their second show. It was a pretty September day, his senior year in high school. And Gretchen, all tall and blonde with dark glasses, high cheekbones, and blood lipstick lips, said in a pout, was sitting on the dumpster up front. She'd called over to him. You guys were hot. Thanks, he'd said. Although he had little experience with girls, he was used to compliments without his, about his singing. He, took, he looked into her dark glasses. I write for Get Your Punk Rocks Off, she said. You ever seen an issue? You got something. I'm going to write about you guys. Maybe we can talk sometime. We'll be at the Lismar Lounge in two weeks. She patted the heavy lid of the dumpster next to her. How about right now? He turned his back to her, put his palms on the dumpster lid, and lifted himself beside her. I'm Gretchen. Her voice was breathy, a bit scratchy and rhythmic. He liked it. He never made it inside for the next bands. Instead, they talked. She was an English major at NYU, originally from Philadelphia. She was two years older than him. She was smart, funny, and loved comic books and records and good music. She was undeniably pretty, even with the blush of acne on her left cheek. And her prettiness was not lost on Samara when she came out of the club after Murphy's Law played. The guys want to know if you're ready to pack up your gear. Your pretty friend can help if she wants. Gretchen took that as her cue to leave, though she gave him her number and a kiss somewhere between the lips and the cheek. It was sensuous, and with the sweat of the day, it felt as if she left an imprint on his mouth. As Gretchen and he walked back into the dark club, Samarad said, Looks to me like you found yourself a girlfriend, a pretty one. You know what to do next? Over the next two months, he would learn. He'd call her that he called her that night, unable to wait. Two days later, he was meeting her for coffee after class. Soon, it was shows and art galleries and hanging out in Washington Square, watching the skateboard kids, smoking cigarettes and talking, always talking. The kisses moved from near the mouth to on the mouth and to on the body. It was three weeks before he'd lost his virginity, another two weeks before he'd said, I loved you to her. She was grateful for it, his eagerness, his innocence, his earnestness, and she nodded sweetly at him. It wouldn't be till Christmas when he would say it, when she would say it back to him. Once Gretchen moved out, word went out that he was single, and the girls at the shows, even the ones who'd arrived with boyfriends, always seemed to be eyeing him. Samara helped with that. She stayed close by without interfering. It was she who protected him, even if he wouldn't admit his vulnerability. After Gretchen moved out, Samara stayed on the couch most nights. The rent went up for the two of them, and they'd argue. He'd been friends with her for five years. He liked Samara for all her flaws. He thought of her as a pretty girl, someone who knew she was pretty and knew how to use it. He would come home some nights, tired, strung out from playing a long set, ears ringing, buzzed from a few drinks given to him at the bar, and all he wanted to do was talk, not kiss, not touch, just lean in close and talk. Samara wasn't that type of girl. It didn't take long for him to miss Gretchen, but by then it was too late. Sometimes he would see her at a show or on the streets. They would always hug, talk closely. He had hurt her, he knew. That last time he'd seen her, she was stepping out of Trash and Vaudeville, a punk clothing store on St. Mark's Place, with a large black and pink bag. It was May. They'd been apart for almost a year and a half. Been shopping, he'd said, and she smiled but looked down awkwardly. Yeah, I graduated. He clapped quietly and quickly for her, and she did a mock curtsy. Both smiling, he'd hugged her and kissed her cheek. She moved her head a bit lower. They small-talked. 
finally she said, I'm moving to Pittsburgh for grad school, and I thought I'd better pick some gear before I left. She shrugged. You're moving? The crowds on St. Mark's place walked past them. He felt as if one of them could crush her. She nodded. Don't be so surprised. What's here for me? She looked at him as if waiting for an answer. After some awkward silence, she'd asked, Do you know I really loved you? Yeah, he said. His stomach roiled, and he felt he might puke. He didn't know why. I really loved you, too. I know you think so. Her voice was weaker than he'd remembered. He never saw her again. Hong Kong Garden ended, and he hit the seek button. He wondered what happened to her. He had played Pittsburgh countless times, and never had anyone come up to him and said, Did you know? He never saw it a show. He hadn't considered this in a long time, probably in part because a few months after Gretchen announced she was moving, he'd started dating Charmaine. I don't know. You know, <laughs> often people throw things at me. I don't know. Well, right on. That was great. His book is great. I read it. I want to reread it, actually. I, uh, yeah, it's good. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, his I, book is great. I think um, I can. All of his books are great, actually. I think I can do that. Um, <laughs> so, is, it, is this? Do I, yeah, it's, um, it's live. Okay, now, keeping in mind that I'm not a professional reader like Jerry, um, I, I don't, I've only, I, this is my new book, uh, King Dork Approximately, what I'm proposing to read from, although I haven't um, read very much from it in public, and I only had one spot marked, and so just like, just in the, like, uh, 20 minutes ago, I went through to try to find the things it's actually hard to find stuff in your own book because you think of it as they're all in one clump, but then you realize that there's you introduce a thing there and then there's all the way down here is when it picks up again and everything. So this is why I'm having a little bit of tr trouble here, um, but I'm still going to do it. Uh, now we feel special. So this is this is the topic of this uh, little bit that I'm going to try to make happen. Um, is this guy, Tom Henderson, is the narrator of these books, is, uh, has gone to a new school where uh, his uh, reputation for being a weirdo um, is not such a big factor in his social life and somehow managed to accidentally find himself with a girlfriend. So the way he introduces this, uh, this, this little uh, thing is he says, talks about this girlfriend, Pamela Shumway is her name. He says, you know my philosophy. Oh, you don't? It's called the, hey, I'll take it philosophy, and it goes like this. Hey, I'll take it. I'd stumbled into Pamela Shumway, and right or wrong, I was going to roll with it. I skipped a little bit. This is a section called On Being a Boyfriend. I've been thinking about it, said Pamela Shumway, and I've decided that from now on, I'm going to wear only leopard print and drink only vodka drinks and no underwear ever. As long as you got a plan, I said. That wasn't snide. It was way more of a plan than I'd ever had. But maybe I didn't need a plan. Just letting things happen hadn't turned out all that badly, at least so far. Uh, 
I had a girlfriend, something I'd never thought in a million years I'd ever have. I even had a kind of non-threatening social circle in the school pep band. I hated the games and the routines, and I spent a great deal of my time trying to will the basketball team to lose so, she w- so we would have fewer games to go to. But I never had to worry that a band person would try to beat me up. And even though they found my lack of spirit perplexing, the band kids were quite accepting in the end, seeing me, I believe, as a kind of lovable rogue. I'm sure making out all the time with Pamela Shumway, who easily had the largest breasts in the whole music program, enhanced my standing even among my semi-normal band comrades, as it did among the normal population at large. After all, they didn't know that my girlfriend was, in effect, permanently locked down. That's because she's... uh, Turns out she's a Mormon, but um, <clears throat> I must seem like a quite an oppressive guy to them, I imagined, and it might even even have been sort of true. Nevertheless, I began to be conscious conscious of a vague but growing sense of dissatisfaction because having a girlfriend was not at all how I'd imagined it would be. I liked her a lot, and I found myself daydreaming about her and writing songs about her and suffered bouts of crippling anxiety about whether she really loved me and what she was doing and with whom and when we were apart. You know, all the hallmarks of true love. I told her I loved her with the precise required frequency, aided by the robot's helpful letters. The robot is a friend of this girl who writes some uh, uh, notes that uh, explain, uh, well, explain in this case, uh, the state of mind of his girlfriend, who um, he's a, they're unable to communicate about that. Um, once a day was too little, four times a day was too much. We talked on the phone to say goodnight to each other every single night. I meant it all, too, at least to the degree that a person can be sure of genuinely meaning anything. In other words, this was my one, perhaps my only chance at having a non-imaginary girlfriend, and I was trying my hardest to do it well. That part, the liking each other and being nice to each other and being on each other's team, wasn't difficult at all. And yet, being had as a boyfriend turned out to be a pretty stressful, anxiety-ridden affair, very unlike, as I said, what I'd expected. For one thing, it involved quite a lot more walking than you'd think. Not only were there there the obligatory laps around the quad during lunch, but there were similarly organized laps around the mall in off hours, plus a good deal of walking just out and about on the street and in parks and such, because there really wasn't anywhere to go, and at least at the park you could find some semi-private place to make out. But other than the walking around and making out, we didn't end up doing a whole lot alone together, just the two of us. When we weren't kissing or groping or walking in an arm-in-arm clinch, there didn't seem to be a whole lot to say. So when we stopped, there would be a kind of uncomfortable pause till we would just relieve the tension by starting to make out again. Most of the conversations we did have revolved around administering the relationship. Where were we going to go? Who were we going to see? What was she going to wear, etc.? Um, whether I still thought she was cute. But the most difficult part for me was the endless array of social obligations that came along with being Pamela Shumway's boyfriend. Until you have been the boyfriend of a girl with school spirit, you have no idea how much non-making out activity it involves. (laughs) Now, you may not know this about me, but basically, I don't like people all that much. One-on-one, I'm fine if the other one is halfway decent and at least sort of interesting and most importantly, not trying to kill me. A trio, if everyone is nice and not too normal, I can handle. But a big group of kids jabbering and chattering and whooping and hollering about their damnable school activities, their GPAs and the terrible music they liked, and ranging in type from quasi-decent to full-on normal psychotic, that's not my scene, baby, just not my scene. I mean, you have no idea how many school-sponsored events there are on the calendar. It's unreal. 
And I was obligated to go to pretty much everyone, the games, the track meets, the plays, the dances, the gymnastics, the fundraising, bake sales, everything, and that was on top of the pep band stuff I already had to do. I felt like I was spending nearly all my waking hours participating in some school-sponsored activity, which is basically everything I stand against. I would come home from some event, look in the mirror, and say, who are you? The only break I ever had from this relentless socializing was on Tuesday nights when Pam would attend her Latter-day Saints youth group meetings. That's three things I detest all in one, youth, groups, and, you know, meeting. I never thought I'd have cause to thank God for not making me a Mormon, but it was the one thing I wasn't forced to go to, and I came to look forward to Tuesday as a precious little island of freedom set in a sea of oppression. Now, when I'm with a big group of normal people, I withdraw into my own head, a defense mechanism, I guess it's called. It's either that or I explode, at least that's what it feels like. Or I manage to slink off to some corner and lick my wounds or make some excuse and flee back home to where there are no people, only records and guitars and a sort of family. But when you have a girlfriend, you can't leave and you can't withdraw into your head either, not if you don't want her to get mad at you and take it out on you for days. My girlfriend expressed her anger and disappointment chiefly by walking slower. We would be walking along as usual, and I'd suddenly notice she was back there going at a slowed pace, her head down. So I would scamper back and try to recalibrate, attempting to match her step, which would in turn get even slower. Sometimes she would just stop in the middle of the street altogether, head down, till I went back and grabbed her by the arm to pull her out of the way of the oncoming traffic. It was the most challenging game of try to guess what I'm mad about ever. I mean, I guess I get it, because in the dynamic, glittering social scene of drinking Coors Light, smoking dope, and blasting, quote, booty music down by the reservoir, a silent, pensive boyfriend is just an embarrassment. If it had been just Pam, the robot, and I, like how it started out, it would have been nice, even fun maybe, but in the greater, semi-to-full-on, normal world, I wasn't cutting it as a boyfriend. And I knew the other girls were all saying things like, what's the matter with your boyfriend, and he's weird, or even... He's creepy. I suppose I should have known it would only be a matter of time before this exposure of who I really was would be my undoing. But I was naive. Free girlfriend, I thought. What could go wrong? (laughs) But as the saying goes, there's no such thing as a free girlfriend. And as a philosophy or as a practical guide to how to conduct your romantic affairs, the hey, I'll take it philosophy isn't quite the be-all and end-all of all philosophies that I'd imagined it to be. Okay. What happens now? We could take some questions. questions. You can play some music. We could take yeah, some questions. Yeah, I'd like to take some questions, and then I could pick up the guitar and play something, and, uh, and then other questions or something. Are there any questions? Ah, oh, come on. Yeah. That is a re- that is a really good question because it is it is not easy to answer. Uh, you you want to go with I mean the voice of the character the character has his own momentum. You uh, you don't want uh, you don't want to just uh, well I mean the thing you're saying is to try to create an effect on the reader that will be funny to the reader um, 
quite completely apart from or funny or interesting or meaningful in some way, apart from what it would mean to the characters. But then um, there's also a thing that people, when they write about music, almost always do, and I try not to do it, but I'm guilty of it, everyone is, where you're taking, if you believe in rock and roll, you're putting your stuff you believe in there, and you're, it's a polemic for your version of what's right and your version of what's wrong. And you can... Even when you make your character go against that, that's still doing that. And um, so, but all that stuff happens. And I think that there's a, there, the, the, I would say kind of wry meta joke of the, of the second thing that you mentioned is a really fun part for me of the writing because I know that my people, people who, who read this stuff, will, uh, will get a little kick out of it that has almost nothing to do with the story, even though that's breaking some rule of fiction, I know. But it's still fun to do it, so, you know, I'm all about the fun, so I do it anyway. Yeah, I mean, uh, I sort of have the same same feeling, which is that, you know, I mean, pretty much uh, Johnny is, he's not autobiographically me, but there's a lot of me in him, and... um, it seems like every girl I knew in 1986 loved Susie and the Banshees. Um, just, you know, um, and so I, I, and I, I, I just, um, I was in this moment, I just, I was like, okay, I, I pretty much write a novel this way, which is, what happens next? And it can't be, what do I do to the character next? Because I'm not God, like, you know, that just makes you in the role of, like, Zeus throwing lightning bolts. So I'm like, what does Johnny do next? Or what is, and this, this, every chapter sort of moves between who's the focus. So it's like, well, he's driving back. He's driving up from the show in Baltimore. He's driving up to New York. And what's he doing? Well, I'm like, he's hitting the radio station. And he doesn't realize, by the way, this rental car has satellite radio. This is something his niece points out to him the next day uh, going to the funeral. So he's doing this thing, which I'm sure we've all done, which is the seek button, looking for something good. Um, and... Um, there are various, you know, there, 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 there are other moments in which he's like, no, not, not that, not the country station, not the Jesus station, not the... Um, and so I was just imagining, like, what would be on? And I, would, I just sort of kept going, like, well, it can't be this. And, and, I, and that chapter had about nine or ten different things that I tried in that space. And, like, one of them was Cats in the Cradle, because he's going to his father's funeral. I said, it's too soon for that. And that shows up later on, and his niece says... Oh, it's so cheesy. And that's, of course, a very, as it turns out, it's a very cynical adolescent response to what is a incredible song about realizing you've been a bad parent. And as a bad parent, I understand that now in a way that I didn't. I actually am a good parent, but I've had my bad moments. Um, but, you know, sort of, sort of playing with that. And so I had to find the right song. And, and I literally... I literally would wake up every morning, as I do anyway, and I would spin about three albums. I would just sort of pick in random. And it'd be like, no, not that. No, not that. Oh, The Replacements, that's interesting. No, not that. Um, you know, and, and, and finally, and, and literally it was finally putting on a Susie and the Banshees record. And I was like, ooh, that. Where is that going to take me? It's going to take me to a memory of a girlfriend. And, and that's what I went with. Um, and I didn't know these characters very well. I was finding out the characters as, as I was writing the novel. Um, I was taking copious notes about them, but I didn't know them probably as well as I should have. You ever do the, um, to any 
big degree the like the James Joyce David Bowie thing of sort of leaving it up to fate and accidentally say, like doing the seek button and like whatever that is I'm putting that in the book no matter what and because I I kind of think I kind of do that we run out of ideas but like there's books that the guy this guy reads um, in the books and and sometimes they're very consciously directed and I've figured out oh they're serving a purpose but but um, one while I was writing this I said okay I need a book for him to read and I told my girlfriend to just pick a random book out of my books. And it turned out to be Philip K. Dick's Blow My Tears, A Policeman Said. And then I was like, ah, do I remember this? I had to read the book. Because um, <laughs> it had been years and years and years. It's a good book still. But anyway, I, I, I don't know. That's a really stupid way to go about writing your book. But sometimes it... Well, I actually, at one point, I, I, I wanted Johnny to have a tattoo. And I was like, well, I want to have a tattoo of a, of a, of a punk band. And I just sort of... Pulled uh, pulled an album at random. It was Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers, LAMF okay. Revisited. There you go. And there's the great uh, image on the back of that of the, the sort of it's the pink circle with the with the black skull with the, with the heart and the broken. And I was like, oh, that's what he has tattooed. And then later on, his niece, who his niece, he you have to realize he hasn't he hasn't seen his niece in, since she was three. And the niece actually wasn't really sure that Johnny Malice was her uncle, John Malucci. She like. Because he was so ostracized from the family, um, so she kind of has a crush on him, uh, which was really creepy to write, actually. Uh, but at one point, she comes. She she she. He he is surreptitiously staying it, it, the 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 house where the, the the house where his older brother lives, who he has not spoken to, is a is a, is a what they call a mother daughter house. You know, the so main house is upstairs. There's a little apartment in the basement. And that's where his father had lived. And he shows up at about four in the morning and he goes to, to meet his sister, who he has been in touch with. And he's staying, he spends the night in the father's apartment. And the big fear, of course, is that the brother's going to come down. That's kind of like the, for me, it was like the on-running joke. The, the brother's not going to come down. But um, at one point, he's, he's taken a shower and, and he's, he's, come out of the, he's come out of the bathroom, but he's shirtless. And his niece has been downstairs and is sort of like staring at him, and like, and she like realizes she's staring, so she focuses on the tattoo, and and I was like, oh, he just says to her, he he sings to her a, a line of pirate love by Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers, like to sort of catch her out, which that was completely accidental because that happened to be what the tattoo was. Had it been the four bars of Black Flag, I would have been screwed. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think it's fun, but then you know, then which you you end up, you know rationalizing it afterwards which is also kind of you can be creative but a lot like a lot of subculture subcultural stuff it's uh, so much of my books i think a lot of people is probably it's because it's like just basically you're you're creating a structure for inside jokes and then you're trying to figure out a way to make those relevant to the people who are not in, the, in on the joke. And it's an interesting thing to do. I don't know any other way to do it. It's been, you know, I think it comes from uh, all my social interaction in my life has been with uh, the, this subculture, really. Because until, until punk rock became my social world, my only, it was only my bedroom guitars, uh, you know, the Lord of the Rings and pornography and uh, we lived on opposite coasts or we would have been friends <laughs> <clears throat> yeah 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 
Well, the simple answer is yes. Uh, the, the more complicated answer is the reason that's in there is that that does, uh, that is a line that is, that is drawn by not just me and Tom Henderson between what a certain attitude towards rock and roll music and, a, and, uh, and art rock I mean, I'm, I'm not saying there's all, that all art rock is bad, but there's a, there is a, uh, I, think he, I think he makes an argument for it in the, in the book, which is you start with rock and roll as cars and girls, you, divert, you diverge from that too much, and especially if you try to be some kind of messianic poet, you have left behind the thing that you like when you like wigwam bam or uh you know or the beach boys or the ramones or what have you and so that's the reason why uh i find them really irritating not only because they don't have a bass player but that is part of it um you know i have to say i like my messianic poets to be messianic poets and my rock and rollers to be rock and rollers and and, and even in my own life those are two very different roles it's like living with two different people um yeah, no, I, I actually don't like the Doors either. And uh, well, I, no one I know does, but there, but you, seriously, that's not even something that's controversial in the circles that I that I move in at all. You say that, no one would. Even, but out in the greater world, it puzzles it puzzles people. I don't like the Doors. The Doors are very important. I saw a documentary about them on PBS, and they were very important in the '60s. Which you are interested in the '60s, are you not, young man? And <laughs> You know, I, I don't know. You can't quite describe it. It's you, you, you're in it or you're out of it. Yeah, it's a weird thing. It's a, I mean, why, there, there are other examples of that. Why, don't we, why do we pick on the doors? I don't know, but we do, you know? It's like, why is it Nickelback? There are, there, there are... Um, I can tell you why it's Nickelback. Yeah, there are, I mean, not, the, not that I know, not that I know, not that I can make an actual scientific case that there aren't worse bands than Nickelback, but I suspect there are. Um, I just guess because there's something worse than anything, and most music is awful. So I don't. But why them particularly? I don't know. It's just a cultural thing. But you say Nickelback, everyone knows what you mean. You said that the the, ver, the version of culture that that for for whom the Doors represents that is smaller probably than the world for whom Nickelback represents what it represents. But it's the same kind of thing. It's a shorthand for a whole philosophy of life. <laughs> That's really funny, but it's true. Uh, <laughs> Other questions? Well, okay. I don't know. We've got 15 more minutes. I'll play a song, and then we'll see how it goes. All right? See, I usually, because I don't like reading, so I usually just have the guitar, and I, and I intend to, oh, maybe I'll do some reading, but really, I just play the guitar. Um, and my, uh, my book has songs in it. The, the guy in my book is a, song, is a songwriter, and I write the songs that he mentions. That's the little gimmick. And you say that you, you did that too. Yeah. Much. I didn't realize that. I'm yeah. surprised to hear that. It's, it's, a good, it's a good way to have content when you do appearances trying to promote your book. Um, and also, it's just fun. And the thing, I think in the earlier... Um, uh, thing you said that you, that it was a challenge or it was an interesting thing to write to write songs with maybe that aren't such aren't so great 
or that have a you know purposely that you kind of fracture them around and I do that is a fun thing but it's not as much of a stretch for me uh, my my songwriting tends to be very uh, adolescent with a very adolescent voice in general so actually there's some things in Tom Henderson songs that I wouldn't do in one of my songs. Uh, there's some things, though, that I put in the Tom Henderson songs that there's no way a 14-year-old kid who doesn't know how to play the guitar would ever do, and you, that's just suspend your disbelief. So, in, in my book, there is a character named Cynthia with a Y, and the, the Y, it, Cynthia already has a Y, but this Y is in place of the I at the end, where the I normally is, and then instead of the Y at the beginning, there's an I, so the Y and the I have switched places. And then instead of the dot above the I, there's an X. So the name of this character is Cynthia with the Y, X above the I. And when you encounter something like that and you're a songwriter, you're the, you are scrambling for your guitar to write a song about this person. That's what you obviously do, right? So that's what Tom Henderson did, and this is what I have done as well. This is Cynthia with a Y.
appreciate it. Do we have any questions? Requests? I can try to do that. It's been a while. Let me see. This is a, one of my old songs that I don't do that much. But yeah, I mean, what am I going to do? The one guy who knows my songs. Is... <laughs> I was going to say even Hitler had a girlfriend, but that is a that is another uh, that is another possibility. I already promised this guy, so I'm going to do that, and then we'll see where we are.
I never thought I'd get that much applause in a mostly empty room in a library in Baltimore, Maryland. So I very much appreciate it. Uh oh, it's the cops. Pardon me? Too loud for the library. It's the library police. Any other questions or anything? Anything, anything else we can do for you as authors uh, to make your stay here more pleasurable? We're going to be signing books downstairs. Uh, downstairs directly after this, I believe. Yes. All right. I've got a finale planned to play, so I'm going to do it, but I want to make sure that there's nothing else going on that we need to. Is We could certainly do that. I have time to do the program. Um, you know, th this song was one of the songs that, so this, this song that, I don't know how many of you know who I am or anything, but obviously <laughs> this guy does, this guy does, these guys do. Um, but, so I'm probably most known for this song of anything I've ever done, and whatever I do, it's probably what's gonna be on my tombstone, uh, you know, in effect. Uh, it is, a, it is a, a weird thing because I, I play it so much, people love it, they like to hear it, but once you have heard it and get the, the joke, then it no longer is funny really, you know? So it's just you're kind of commemorating the time you first heard it and got the joke by listening to it. But when, since becoming a young adult novelist, one of the things you do as a YA author is you go to do school visits, you can go to school groups. And these are kids who almost, I mean, occasionally I will meet one who, who does know about my My dad past. likes your band. Yeah, sometimes, yeah, sometimes. No, even worse than that is, I think he used to date my mom. That's the one that, when I first started hearing that, that was really funny. It's like, that, that is the sort of thing you hear it and then you start to feel like maybe uh, you want to change your identity. And, but, um, and but, I kind of look like you. Exactly. Exactly the, the fear that that, that, that uh, engenders. Um, but so uh, the, the thing is that it, it had been probably 20 years since I had played the, the song I'm about to play for an audience that didn't already know what all the words were. And it is pretty cool to see that the jokes still land, you know, because I just ordinarily I thought it'd never happen again. So, you know, it was a surprise to me. I still haven't found a girlfriend, though I've tried a lot. Can you help me, please? It's tougher than I thought. The odds are pretty good, but the goods are pretty odd. Still, at this point, I'd take anything you got. You see this all the time. Nice girls fill up with jerks. What could they be?
song in, but yes. Well, but I just, uh, yeah, yeah. Fanatical following with adults. Uh, this book has been passed around to me by an adult. Uh, all my friends that I've given it to are adults. Everybody raves about it. Does, do young adults get it? Yes, 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 they they do. I think, but not, I, I, there, there is a kind of a way that you write for teenagers, which I, which is, which there's a place for it. Um, and a lot of people do it. I kind of object to it in a way, although I'm not going to say no one should do it, where you are pro providing uh, educational materials, you're trying to help them be better people, you're trying to help them learn to deal with the, the problems of their life. And um, it, I mean, it, there's a, a, a kind of a derogatory word for that, it was a bibliotherapy. Um, I, I d that's not the kind of thing that I do. So there is a divide between uh, young people who are looking for that or young people who are trying to impress adults like teachers and parents who are looking for them to be looking for that. But there, I would honestly say there is no difference between the reaction of adults, so-called adults, and so-called young people <laughs> to these books, and they're not written to do that. They're, they are they're, uh, written to be an authentic presentation of the of the character. I mean, the, the, the publisher is always skeptical about stuff like that. It's like, they're not going to get the references. They're not going to grasp the, this and that. You know, if they don't get the references, they can look them up. We are in an age where uh, it's never been easier to look something up, and it's actually kind of insulting for the people in New York to go, well, they'll never know what the Doors is. Are you crazy? It's like, you know, come on, they've all got phones. We even have phones. So, um, so that, but I know there are, there, I mean, obviously there's some people who just don't like it. There's some people who don't get it. But the difference between talking to a 16-year-old kid and talking to a 35-year-old guy who both have, who both like the book is it's the same conversation essentially, so which I am, you know, I'm obviously kind of proud of it because I'm uh, talking about it like this now. Um, okay, I have like a two and a half minute song to play, but I gotta get a thing because I forgot that I was gonna do this machine to make my bad voice not be so, make it so hard to see. I got this fanciest. Cape on. I always have a trouble with it. It's supposed to be better than the. All right. This so, but my um, I am recording some of these songs for what I hope to be, if I can manage to afford to do it, a King Dork approximately the album. And I had uh, I had six songs from King Dork, and then when I, um, or I had six songs from King Dork approximately, and I realized when I went back, I only had five from King Dork. So that means I had to come up with a, uh, an additional song. And the way I decided to do that, because I didn't have any idea for a song, I did this thing that people sometimes do with the Bible to, uh, 
to um, decide big decisions in their life is they open it and they point to a passage and they do whatever it says, which is honestly not a bad way. I, I mean, look, I didn't do that for 50 years and it didn't get me all that, uh, <laughs> all that far. So like, uh, possibly um, it's a good way to live your life unless you just have to hope you don't land in Leviticus because that's, <laughs> that's a terrible way to go. Um, but I did it with my own book and I just went like this. And what I wound up with was um, a, a chapter heading, a little section heading called that, that goes, high school is a penalty for transgressions as yet unspecified. And um, so I said, okay, that's going to be my song. But that's a pretty challenging thing to make a song about because it doesn't scan, it doesn't really have a beat to it, it doesn't rhyme, it, there's nothing very, like that screams out song, song, song. But that was a challenge, and the thing is that when you're a songwriter, you can make it rhyme. Um, Irving Berlin taught me that. This, is, uh, this song is called uh, High School is a Penalty for Transgressions As Yet Unspecified. It's one of those ones that has a lot of words, so I could screw up, and I apologize for that in advance, but here it goes. Stand by. 
Thank you, Greg. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, City Lit. Frank Portman, I'm Jerry LaFemina. We'll be downstairs. Downstairs, selling books and signing books. So thanks a lot, Frank. Thanks a lot, Jerry. We have to sell our books too?